welcome to an informed live radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager. And as our theme song says, we need a revolution. We need a peaceful, healthful revolution. And we do need leaders to show us the light, to show us the way, to help us make those informed choices and really that's what we're in the midst of right now is sort of this battle between government entities attempting to take away your ability to make an informed choice. Normally on on this program, I you know, I talk a lot about the vaccine choice. That's sort of the roots of Informed Choice Washington. And with COVID and the COVID vaccines out there, we've been doing a lot of discussion about that. But when it comes to informed consent and informed choice, there are many areas of medicine that are being impacted and people are finding their rights are being undermined and and you know we've got a lot of work to do uh, to empower ourselves um i like to quote dr uh, michael uh, gaeta who's been on the show several times we we need a revolution moving to nature first and drugs last you know um you guys have all heard me talk a lot about ivermectin. Normally, I'm just gung-ho for all things natural, but when it comes to COVID, I'm on that ivermectin uh, front. I'm educating everybody on that. Uh, but, you know, everything is about benefit risk, doing your research, what's the best way forward. I want to remind people that we have an awesome, awesome sponsor this hour. This is being brought to you by the Children's Health Defense. And I encourage listeners to go to childrenshealthdefense.org. They have beautiful articles about what's going on. They have action um, suggestions and campaigns that you can take part in so that you can be empowered to make some real important changes for the world, for yourself, for your children. And, um, and of course, there's always informedchoicewa.org. Today's guest, I'm really excited. I just met this um, doctor a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, his name is Dr. Stuart Fishbein, um, medical doctor. I'm going to call him Dr. Stu. He's an associate of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, published author of the book, Fearless Pregnancy, Wisdom and Reassurance from a Doctor, a Midwife, and a Mom. Dr. Stu spent 24 years assisting women with hospital birthing, and for the past 11 years, he has been a home birth obstetrician who works directly with midwives. Uh, you can find information about him by going to birthinginstincts.com. Uh, Dr. Stu travels around the world as a lecturer and advocate for reteaching breach and twin birth respect for the normality of birth and informed consent. I want to start off with that, the normality of birth. Follow him on Instagram at Birthing Instincts and at the Birthing Instincts podcast with midwife Bliss Young on your smartphone app. Um, later on today, I'll put some of these connections right on our radio uh, show page. If they're not up there now, they will be soon, uh, where you can find out more about him. I'm just going to go ahead and bring him on. Hi, Dr. Stu. Hi, Bernadette. Uh, thanks for that introduction. You're, you're welcome. It's it's such a pleasure to bring this topic of informed consent and informed choice to in, an informed life radio. It's something that we haven't really discussed before. So, you know, tell us a little bit your, about yourself, about your journey, because you started off as a regular MD in the hospital setting, doing things that I don't want to say traditional, <laughs> the modern way. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about your journey that led to where you are today. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Um, 
you know, I don't, I don't know who your audience is. So it's sort of, sort of, I'll just speak in general terms. Um, like most medical students, um, we go to residency programs in a specialty that we think we want to do. And when I was a third year medical student, I had just come off a hematology oncology rotation. Uh, I went to the uh, University of Minnesota Medical School and um, my next rotation was OBG, uh, obstetrics. I still remember it was at St. Joseph's Hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota. I still remember the first woman that I helped assist her delivery. Her name was Debbie Smith. Her child would be over 40 years old by now, which is a scary thought when I think about that. Um, and uh, so I decided that I really liked the specialty of obstetrics because when you're a medical student, first of all, you're very naive and you don't know <laughs> you don't know things about the world and what it's like. You don't know things about being on call or liability or those things don't seem to matter to you. But I really liked the fact that it, it gave me the, the ability to do longitudinal care, which was the number one thing I wanted, which was taking care of people over time, not just being an emergency room physician and sewing up your laceration and never seeing you again or that sort of thing, but being someone that I take care of over time. Plus, OBGYN gets to do some primary care, we get to do some endocrinology, we get to do some surgery, we get to do some psychiatry, internal medicine, and we get to catch babies. So it seemed like a great fit for me. Uh, and I went off and did my residency here in Southern California. And I've been here ever since. And when I came out of residency at Cedar sinai here in Los Angeles, I was trained in the medical model, like every other physician is trained. It was a little bit different era back then. We did have training in things that are no longer you're being trained in like breech delivery and forceps delivery and twin vaginal birthing and stuff because it was a different world in 1982 to 86 than it is now but i came out thinking that pregnancy was a sort of a, a, a disease process or an illness that required medical treatment this is the way that pretty much all residents are taught they're taught in a high risk setting. They're taught a lot by maternal fetal medicine specialists whose specialty is what? High risk obstetrics. So everything is involved and anything that was normal, we really rarely saw because the normal people laboring were never cared for by residents or doctors. The nurses took care of them and we got called at the last minute to come to the room to catch the baby, cut the cord, hand the baby to the warmer in those days and um, uh, write the orders do a repair if there was necessary to repair write the orders and then in the system there was no continuity of care the person that came on the next day would be doing postpartum and then the woman would be discharged and you never see her again and um they she'd come to the clinic in six weeks and that was the way we thought it was it was normal to do those sorts of things when i finished my residency i came out into private practice and in those days that was also different you didn't come out and get a salary working for a, an hmo or a a big foundation like Kaiser or anything like that, you built your practice by hustling. And so I was approached as one of the things that I did besides cover free clinics and assist people in surgery and, and cover emergency rooms was I was approached by local midwives and asked if I would be a backup physician, which meant that I would take their transports from home. And I said, sure. But I didn't say sure because I thought home birth was a good idea I, uh, or that natural birthing was a good idea. As a matter of fact, I probably thought it was stupid. But um, I did it because I wanted to make money, pure and simple. And it was probably a wise decision on my part because over the years I began to see a different way of doing things, a different way of consenting patients. The fact that the people that were having home births that I met were actually very well educated, probably more so than my own clients. They were given informed decision-making and, and the autonomy of their 
of their um, decisions was, was being empowered. And that wasn't the way it was in the hospital setting. We really didn't give people choices. Everybody sort of followed an algorithm. And when you went outside the algorithm, it made everyone in the, la in the labor floor uncomfortable. But the midwifery model was different. And it took me a while. After about 10 years in private practice, I actually formed a collaborative midwifery practice with two certified nurse midwives. We had hospital privileges out in Ventura County. We didn't stay at Cedars or anything like that because Cedars wasn't, wouldn't allow midwives to have privileges. But there were some hospitals out in Ventura County that did. And so that's where we went. And for 15 years, we had a really good practice with really good statistics and good patient satisfaction and good doctor and midwife satisfaction as well. And uh, but we were never accepted by the local community. Um, we did things differently. And that is like the old Japanese proverb. What do you do with the nail that stands out? You pound it back in again. And we were constantly pounded on. Because when I'm going to interrupt just for yeah, a second. When you say you weren't yeah. monologuing, that's okay. No, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. But I just wanted you to define local community. Um, what does do you mean the the local medical community was not accepting you? Yes. Not yeah. the people who live there, not the no, general the public. People who <laughs> live there were, were eating it up and gobbling for looking for choices. But okay. no, the the medical community. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, the anesthesiologists were not happy with us. The pediatricians were not happy with us. The other OBs, you know, had had really sort of conditioned the nurses to believe that there was only one way of doing something, and it was a fear-based, medicalized model. And the fact that our patients would come in and want to eat and not have an epidural and want to move and and want to go home four hours after they delivered and and not want to have the cord cut immediately and not want to have the baby go to the nursery and not want hepatitis vaccine vaccine, which I'm sure you've covered ad nauseum on your program, um, all those things, not want to put stuff in the baby's eyes, made, made the pediatricians uncomfortable. The fact that didn't, they didn't want epidurals, a lot of them, mm -hmm. was not good for business for the anesthesiologists. And I'm not, again, I, I want to be very clear whenever I give this talk that I'm not picking on these people as individuals. They are part of cogs in a wheel of a model that is archaic and, and unethical at many points. And needs to be it's the model that's the problem not yeah. necessarily the people people mm -hmm. get caught up in it and you and it's very hard to speak out against it because as we see in what's going on right now if you speak out about ivermectin or you speak out about hydroxychloroquine you can lose your job you can mm -hmm. be um, uh, shunned or you can be canceled and and so people are beaten up and it and most people just want to keep their head down go to yeah. work do their job and come home to their family that's what yeah well, you know, when what I've been saying, though, is, you know, like all of the problems with with medicine and, and everything being profit driven, fear driven, all of the different things you're talking about, systemic problems with um, regulatory agencies, bureaucratic oversight, all of that has existed. And there's been voices here and there, us on a certain topic, you on a certain topic, but we haven't really been able to dent it much because it's such a monster the silver lining of COVID has been everybody is becoming very aware of the problems. And so I do have hope that as more and more people begin to see that systematically 
things need to change, then we can um, move forward and get that change because our numbers are growing. We are not alone anymore. You and Dr. Stu and Bernadette and the, and the likes of us, we're not alone anymore as more and more people see that these changes are so very important. And what happens if you're complacent? I guess that's the other thing is so many people have just like created their own little bubble. I'm going to practice my way. I'm going to, I'm going to raise my kids this way and I'm not going to, I'm not going to stand up and speak out and be ostracized. And, and this has led us to where we are now. We're all painted into a corner and, and I'm, I, I'm a little bit crude here when I say this, but it's stand up or bend over time because they're about to just grab us by the root hairs and paint under our feet. We got no corner left. <laughs> so but the good news is, it's like our numbers have grown. So I feel like more and more people will be stepping out, speaking out. And um, and in those numbers, we'll get those changes that we really need. Yeah, the stuff that you're seeing now with the with the coronavirus is basically just highlighted what has been going on in my profession for a really long time. And I mean, I can't speak to some other specialties. I can only, as an expert, speak to what's going on in obstetrics. But it's been going on for a very long time. We have seen... Um, hospital you know the the we've seen people stand up and try to fight but it, it can't come from individual physicians or nurses or midwives it's got to come from the women of america demanding that uh, these choices be honored because mm -hmm. what happens is when you have um a hospital setting which you know doesn't allow these sorts of things to occur it's very hard for one single person to come in and make changes because the, the hospital is bigger and stronger and everything else. And so you end up with, um, I guess I'm, I'm trying to think the best way to say this. You end up with a hospital that um, if you try to, well, they, they will put on a show for you. They'll like, like, I remember 10, 15 years ago, hospitals were maybe even longer ago. They were trying to make their, somebody came out with the idea, well, well, we, we can't, have home birth, but we can at least make the hospital more homelike. And so they came out with new flooring and curtains in the labor rooms and they hid the ultrasound or the oxygen machines behind cabinets that made it look like you were in another place. But you didn't change anything. Mm -hmm. You can't change the facade. And the facade was really busted by, by the coronavirus lockdown because these hospitals were clamoring over themselves to become mother baby friendly. They this, get this title of mother baby friendly and it's a certificate and they can hang it on their wall stuff like that. But the minute the, the, the um, pandemic struck, what did they do? They basically told pregnant laboring women that you're no different than a, somebody coming in for surgery on her gallbladder. Mm -hmm. Why do you need a support person? Why does your husband have to be there? Okay, you have to wear a mask. Your baby has to be observed in the nursery. Um, so this whole mother baby thing went out the window and showed the true colors of the hospital because they essentially made fathers who are already struggling with their new role as going to be would be fathers to into non-essential personnel. You're not allowed in the hospital. You're not allowed to support your wife when she's in labor. She's not allowed to have her support person because it accentuated how hospitals look at birth. Mm -hmm. They look at birth as a medical problem and not as a life event. Mm -hmm. as yeah. well as a normal function of the woman's body that is the most profound thing that a, that a, a family can, that can happen to a family. And it's, it's an event, it's, it, was, it would be like having a wedding, but not being able to choose their venue or they invited people to your wedding you don't like and you couldn't have the food that you want. Nobody would, nobody would do that, but with, with, with obstetrics, we've allowed that to happen for a really long time. 
And that needs to change. That needs to change. But it has to come from people speaking out and asking for these things. And in the pandemic, we may have seen a 30% increase in home birthing. Okay. But if we did see that, that's going from 1% to 1.3%. Okay. okay? <laughs> Not huge. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that 30% of women are having home births and people, for, you know, they don't understand necessarily statistics either. But a 30% increase isn't, is like 30% of a small number is still a really small number. Mm -hmm. So we needed to have much more than that because people need to know it's an option. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, hospitals, again, it's a, the economics of it are such that the hospital model is going to cling to it the way it is right now. And they're not going to want to give up much of what they, what they, uh, of any of this stuff, because they're not going to, because it doesn't serve their purpose and they can't function in the way the midwifery model can function, where they respect the autonomy of each individual woman. Hospitals run their OB programs on algorithms. Every woman comes in and answers the same questions. Every woman comes in and pees in a cup. Every woman comes in and gets an IV. Every woman gets monitored. Every woman gets ice chips or a popsicle. You know, I mean, every, you know, they can't move. They can't get in the shower. They can't do all these things. And we and how we can't individualize because what, if we mess up or something like that, we're going to get sued. So it's it's the whole system. I said very early on in our conversation, it will be kind of a recurring thing is the system is wrong and yeah. needs to be re, needs to be reevaluated we need to retake yeah. birth back to the fact that most of the time it works just fine on its own yeah. and we can be more like lifeguards okay than than um than um hall monitors right? uh, yeah yeah i i love the expression that the system is fixed it needs to be broken because, you know, I mean, it's broken, it needs to be fixed, but in many ways, because a lot of the decisions are being driven by business managers and bottom liners and, and insurance managers and all of that, it's sort of a fixed system that traps the people, the doctors and the, and the patients in there. And, and it, we need to change that language, as you said, like, uh, a mom about to give birth is not a patient. She no. is somebody about to go through the most beautiful, well, sometimes it's not quite so pretty, but the, um, you know, a most wonderful thing you can experience in your life. It's a natural thing. And we just need people on standby in case something goes wrong, in case they need that little bit of assistance. So, and yeah. I have seen over, you know, the past, and maybe you were a big part of how this happened, but I mean, now it's fairly common to not cut the cord right away, to respect when a woman wants to let that the cord pulse for a while. And it's common not to wash off the, uh, what's that called, the vermix? The, um, Babies shouldn't have a bath for the first two weeks of their life. Explain that. Can you explain that to listeners? What's so important about why not well, bathe especially, them? Especially babies that, uh, you know, you can wipe them down with water if they've got blood or meconium or other things on their, you know, on their body, but to give them soap and water is probably a big mistake. Uh, we understand now, even though it's still ignored in the hospital setting, um, we understand the importance of the initial microbiome. Uh, you know, you and I learned at the conference that we attended to that, that the development of babies is done in the second, third trimester of their neuroimmune axis, and that 80% of your immunity comes from your guts and it, your gut is colonized shortly after birth and the bacteria that best colonize your gut and make you most healthy and your respiratory tract are going to be your mother, mother's vaginal and skin bacteria. That's the, the, that's the healthy system. When we deliver a baby in a hospital setting, 
many hospitals still treat it as a hazmat situation. You know, the mother is on her back in stirrups. They cover her legs with blue drapes. They wash her bottom off with a little bit of betadine. The doctor's wearing a hazmat outfit. Baby comes out. It's basically handed to the to the nurse to the nurse in the in the warmer, where they wipe it down, they rub it down, they clean it off, they do all these things to the baby. They wrap the baby up in a swaddle, and then they hand the swaddled baby to the mother. Okay, the 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 nurse is the one touching the baby. The the where the bassinet is, that's touching the baby. The swaddle blanket's touching the baby, but the baby hasn't been exposed to mom's vaginal bacteria and mom's skin. Um, you should just take the baby and place the baby on the mother's chest. And if the baby needs a little bit of resuscitation or anything else, then you can do it right there on the mother's chest. Mm-hmm. And the way, I, the reason that I think that this makes perfect sense and why this disorder isn't propagated in, in the medical model is because you just have to take a look at how every other mammal does it. Mm-hmm. And in no other mammalian model is, the, is, is it a sterile procedure. Is the woman, is the, is the female ever immobilized or starved or bothered? Mm-hmm. The last thing you would do to your dog or your cat if it's in labor was allow the little kids to play in the room while the cat's laboring. You would tell them to do as Sarah Buckley likes to say, keep them quiet, safe, and unobserved. This is how mammals best labor. And when you interrupt that space, the mammal will put out adrenaline. Adrenaline will stop the contractions. The labor becomes dysfunctional. The mammal is designed to then get up and run away. All right. We see this all the time, Bernadette. We see it. Women come to the hospital too early mm-hmm. because their doctor told them to come to the hospital because they broke their bag of waters and they're not in labor yet or because they just started having contractions and it's their first baby and they're three to four minutes apart. They come to the hospital. They go through all this process of getting admitted and then they put them on the monitor and their contractions are eight to ten minutes apart. And they go, well, your contractions have spaced out a lot. Well, well duh. Of course they have. It's That's what mammals do when you when you stress them, when you when you put um, tasks upon them, then these things slow down. Wow, that's interesting. That's fascinating. <laughs> it, it's actually it's actually quite basic. It's quite yeah. basic. Um, we don't do vaginal exams in the in the in the midwifery model, except rarely. All right, and in the medical model, because you have things like the Friedman curve, which is a woman has to labor and she should be dilating at the same rate. Why nobody thought back in the 50s and 60s when this came out that expecting all women who are having their first baby to dilate at the same rate was not a good idea. Like somebody didn't raise their hand and go, excuse me, Dr. Friedman, Dr. Friedman, all women don't labor at the same rate. Well, we have a curve here and it says that they fall off that rate. We need to do something. Well, how do you know if a woman's on the curve? The only way to know that is to do vaginal exams every couple hours. And we know that vaginal exams, first of all, are quite uncomfortable. And second of all, they increase the risk of infection. Mm-hmm. So why are we doing those? Mm-hmm. As my friend, as my uh, colleague, my podcast colleague, Bliss, Bliss likes to say, she said, when was the last someone checked a tiger at seven centimeters? <laughs> I like that. Yeah. You, would never, you would never interrupt a, another mammal by doing vaginal exams. No, or no. By, or by telling them they can't move or by asking them silly questions or by sticking an IV in them or anything. Yeah. On a small percentage of people, they need that. But the home birth model has taught me one thing. Mm-hmm. Well, taught me tons of things. But one of the things it's taught me, and a lot of it I had to unlearn from my medical training, was that things, if you don't meddle with Mother Nature, rarely go wrong quickly. 
the biggest question people have when they hear that somebody might want to have a home birth is they'll say, well, what happens if it go, if something goes wrong? Mm -hmm. And that's a legitimate question, right? And because in the hospital, you'll often see a baby sort of decompensate and end up being rushed back for what they call an emergency C-section and they save the baby and they go, wow, what would you have done if this had happened at home? Well, you know what? We would have immobilized you and starved you and given you an epidural and numbed you and, and given you Pitocin for 16 hours and, and uh, seen the baby decompensate at that point and then say, wow, we better save the baby. That wouldn't happen at home. When babies yeah. decompensate at home, it's almost always a slow process that you can see coming because it's respectful of, of nature's design. Yeah. And nature is not stupid. As they taught us at the conference, nature is smarter than the CEO of Moderna, which is one of my, <laughs> yeah. one of my new favorite quotes. I now, love that. Now, there, there will be people on the other side of the argument will say, oh, well, na yeah, nature's great. You, you can die from uh, you know all these diseases out there and look what modern medicine's done. That's true. That's true. But that's considering that labor and delivery or pregnancy or labor is a medical problem. Yeah. And it's, it's not a medical problem. It, it's it's not. not a medical problem. And, you know, so much of what you're talking about is just using common sense, looking at what we know about life and, and reproduction across the whole animal kingdom. And, you know, and what gets frustrating is when you try to talk common sense and have this be part of these new programs, you get, you hit walls and that's exactly what's going on with COVID. So I'm going to, I'm going to take a break here because part of, part of my mission with um, Inform Life Radio right now to save lives is to make sure people know about ivermectin. So um, I'm going to do a short break and play a short video from the FLCCC. And then when we come back, I want to hear a lot more. I'm just fascinated by everything that you have here. So Listeners, if you'll bear with me here, I'm going to go to uh, this and this and here. And so I'll let everybody know that you're listening to 1150 AM KKNW uh, and Inform Live Radio. And we're going to do a little, it's actually an eight minute PSA that I'm going to play here. You're going to hear the voices of the frontline critical uh, COVID-19 critical care alliance. And um, I will give you their um, address when we're all done here. So everybody you hear in this video is an MD or a PhD. So here we go. If you were to say, you know, tell me the characteristics of a perfect drug to treat COVID, what would you ask for? So I think you would ask for something firstly, that's safe, that's cheap, that's readily available and that has antiviral and anti-inflammatory properties, people would say, that's ridiculous. There could not be possibly be a drug that has all of those characteristics. That's just unreasonable. But we do. The drug is called ivermectin. It was such a benign medication and it has such a great safety margin, and it's so inexpensive that if you didn't have COVID, you still felt better the next day. Here's this treatment that around the world are using. We started reading articles about Peru, Argentina, um, Singapore had done a study in the summertime, and they were seeing pretty impressive results. And what's interesting about it, when you look at the medication, this is a medication that has only been prescribed 3.7 billion times. And I think the mortality rate from the medication was only 12. 
And that's incredible. And on top of that, it won the Nobel Prize. So how can you go wrong? One of the things that's been very unfortunate about this pandemic is that at a time where we need, if anything, out of the box thinking and forward thinking and openness, we've really settled into this way of thinking where we want to wait for large trials to just tell us what to do. There are several studies that have come across from across the globe, over a hundred, that cover all primary research and the meta-analyses. And the majority of them point to the fact that ivermectin has efficacy in shortening the duration of disease, shortening the time that there are symptoms, and in reducing mortality. When you see repeated different investigators in different countries who have nothing to do with one another reproducing a similar result, you cannot ignore it. I think that patients' best interest should always be put first. And if we have a safe drug that we have huge amounts of experience using, we should be offering that to patients right away. Number one, we take care of friends, family, uh, people who go to church with us. We don't want to hurt them, okay? And the safety of ivermectin and the fact that I've been using it for 20-some years in practice gives me confidence that I can use it safely. With ivermectin and a few other things we do in our protocols, we're managing to probably um, have a survival rate in hypoxic patients of over 95%. If you saw that in your practice, I mean, you would be convinced. When you're reading a paper and it says, you know, oh, 33 patients, it's easy to blow off, you know, brush off. Like, come on, this is nothing. I mean, this is what kind of study is that? None of the university and big institutional doctors are allowed to use ivermectin. They've been told not to listen to patient complaints, not to read literature, not to prescribe ivermectin. Um, that they have all put blinders on. And I'm saying, holy cow, I got 260 people, okay, and I just give them this pill. And 99.9% .9 of them have not required anything other than the protocol. We've received patients from as far away as 100 miles away from our office because their experience, unfortunately, has been a refusal adamantly on the part of their primary care doctor to prescribe ivermectin and or a approach where they've been told if they get sick just to go home and if they get sicker to go to the ER. The hospitals, I feel, have an obligation to be transparent and to tell patients, to tell every patient that there is this drug that's being used off-label. There shouldn't be any you know, any criticism because something that was unexpected worked. That's, you know, that's kind of the hallmark of science. When I asked them, why, why, why do you not use divermectin with your COVID patients? They, uh, the answer is, uh, well, there is no evidence. When I showed them the evidence, they changed their mind. Take a look at the election returns on ivermectin from all over the world, yeah. You know, India, Peru, Mexico, you know, Bulgaria, Slovakia, all these places. And ask yourself, what are the odds that this could have happened by chance? You know, unfortunately, when there's research that comes overseas, I think Western medicine sort of looks at them, looks down upon them as if their standards are not up to speed, as if they're not doing randomized control trials as well as we do it here in the United States, which is hogwash because some of the most incredible physicians and the brilliant scientific minds have been from Latin America and Asia and Africa. It's it's. Um, you know, I, I definitely do think, unfortunately, there's, there is this bias towards 
data that's coming from overseas. We came into medicine, we're trained, we know and understand pathophysiology, and the people that are telling us not to use this drug have, they concern me. And they frankly concern the direction of medicine and the direction this country is going in. Governments and health organizations are ignoring the evidence, and there's a mountain of it. And I think this is because they are heavily invested in novel treatments. Corporate medicine makes it very difficult for people to do anything different than the party line. You know, what's the party line? What are we doing today? Or what are we doing this month? With a lot of the resistance to ivermectin is because there are a lot of people that don't want COVID to go away. They're making far too much money out of it. Big Pharma, I think they uh, uh, want to uh, promote mostly what uh, uh, they have with, with the motivation and mostly with the financial uh, incentive they have with uh, creating their new uh, drugs. And one of the horrible things about this, you know, this whole pandemic is just shutting off people, you know, and canceling them. You know, people who are talking about things that work, you know, just booting them off of Facebook and booting them off of Twitter. I'm on my 26th day of censorship on Facebook for violating community standards. Who are these people to be telling frontline doctors how to practice medicine? We need to look at the totality of evidence. We need to look at all the evidence. We need to interrogate all the evidence and have a multidisciplinary team, not just a few celebrity scientists, coming together to make a conclusion about all types of medicine. It's important to maintain scientific rigor and not be cowboys and just run off doing everything experimentally, but at the same time, not sitting back and sort of condemning ourselves to inertia where we can't do anything until a large, extremely well-powered and designed clinical trial just tells us what to do while our patients are dying day after day after day and they need our help, they need us to be doctors, they need us to meet this moment. Why would we not use it. The worst possible outcome is we're going to have a country of parasite-free people. The saddest thing for us is we know this can make a difference and save lives and it seems like nobody really cares and wants to listen to us. That's what frustrates us is that we, we have this massive force out there that's trying to silence us and yet we feel we can't be silenced. We just can't be because you know the truth will ultimately prevail love that so you can go to flccc.net flccc.net lots of videos all the studies to to download to print to share to bring to your doctor to bring to your loved ones um you know you can see why i'm so passionate uh, the people on the radio all those wonderful voices you're hearing those were doctors and scientists from around the world around the world and some nations have authorized it. It's part of their standard of care. So we really need to act on, act on this. And, you know, me playing that video, um, you know, it might get us kicked off Facebook. I don't know. I've, um, the reason I'm streaming on this channel, this Facebook page, instead of our usual public page is because we're in Facebook jail for me sharing ivermectin stuff last week. And um, so probably this might be my last strike, but if, if I reach somebody, if it saves a life today, you know, then it was well worth it. You know, we're finding other platforms. We have to, we have to hit the ground, um, boots on the ground. We got to share information. I printed out information about ivermectin. I brought it to a pharmacy 
um, out of a Kroger owned store here in my town who was refusing to fill the ivermectin. I'm now educating the pharmacist and I'm going to go back there. And if they refuse to dispense it with um, my prescription, then um, I'm going to see what legal action can be taken because they can't be doing that. They cannot pretend to be doctors, right? Dr. Stu, <laughs> a pharmacist cannot, you know, there are certain circumstances where if, if it's against their religious convictions, they can say no and pass it off to somebody else. We're I totally agree. about that here, though. Yeah. We're no, nothing. that nothing here. No. You, and okay. and you like if you see a prescription and you think seriously, it's a very dangerous drug that some doctor's prescribing and you really are concerned for somebody's life. But we're talking about what well, that one guy said out of six million people they had or six oh. billion people. They had 12 um, serious case, issues with it. You know, it's the same, one of the safest drugs on the planet. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't help listen to the ironies as we're listening to them talking about how that that they're they're questioning the the studies or the validity of any studies that have to do with ivermectin, or they're saying there aren't enough studies, but but they're they're endorsing a vaccine that has no studies that have shown that it's safety. People talk about these clinical trials. These clinical trials are rushed through. There's small numbers in them. It doesn't talk, we don't know anything about the efficacy of the longevity, the long-term side effects of it, but they're pushing this because obviously, you know, uh, there's, it's a billion, a multi-billion dollar industry to do that. What you're talking about with ivermectin, I was dealing with last fall with, uh, with hydroxychloroquine, mm -hmm. same sort of thing. I mean, I prescribed it for a few people and initially some of the pharmacies wouldn't fill it. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I was going to have the California medical board come down on me because I wanted to prescribe hydroxychloroquine, even though I'm an OBGYN, I don't, and I don't treat rheumatology. Um, an interesting side, side light of that is, is that the woman at the end was jokingly saying, well, at least we'll have nobody with parasites in the United States. Isn't it interesting that almost nobody with lupus or rheumatoid arthritis who's on, on hydroxychloroquine has come down with serious COVID mm -hmm. either. I mean, mm -hmm. you don't see that. And yet clearly my profession has outdid itself in its, in its, um, destruction of its of our own reputation. Uh, I wouldn't trust the medical profession right now. I certainly don't trust epidemiologists as far as I can throw them, because they've they've all been wrong. They've and they've and they have refused to have any humility. Um, they we're all for trying things, especially like at the end of life if you're trying something. The whole the whole emergency youth authorization for the vaccine was because it was an emergency and we have people dying. And there was just a case, I believe it was Illinois, where they had to go to court this, because this woman was in a coma in a hospital and the family and the doctor wanted to give the woman ivermectin. Mm -hmm. And um, the hospital said, no, you can't. Mm -hmm. And it went to court and the judge sided with the hospital. Things right. out my position to overrule medical judgment, but Right. And you know what happened? We, I, I don't know. I'm still praying for that woman because um, there had been three or four similar cases where the judge ordered the hospital and the hospital followed through and the people all lived. They all ended up going home and recovering. This woman, it just happened over this past weekend, the hospital defied the judge's orders. And then they had to go back to the judge. And I believe there was talk of the sheriff getting involved. The judge had to issue another order. And, you know, days are passing with this woman yeah. in a coma, right, on a ventilator. And finally, the, the hospital began to administer just a few days ago. And I have not heard what's happening well, why, there. Why would, you, why would you fight that? What do you have to lose? No, and there. Why don't we have the right to try? 
We do, but that see, that's the thing. When you're when the, when the doctors say they have nothing more to give, they they have the ability to try. It's compassionate use. The the hospital could have given her any type of um, of the therapies that are in phase two, three clinical trials. They you know you can basically give them just about anything that seems somewhat reasonable to try that the family is asking for. They really have no leg to stand on. I hope I hope they get sued for refusing not just you know this yeah, is you know i mean the, the problem is is that that the i mean our legal system is unfortunately should be the last resort because it's yeah. overloaded and it's filled with rich lawyers who sued on behalf of clients but they themselves got wealthy not yeah. a big fan of the class action lawsuits and yeah. solving things by lawsuits but but ultimately and i don't trust and again I, I it's hard to trust the judicial system right now either yeah but there have been some good judges that have been saying, give the patient ivermectin. So, you know, we need to educate and judges, judges. And those judges' medical expertise comes from where? <laughs> yeah. I mean, why is it? Why does it have to go to a judge to decide this? If Whatever happened to the idea that medical schools and residencies trained me as a physician, trained you as a physician to come out in the world and practice. And then the minute we're out practicing, they don't think we're qualified yeah. to yeah. practice. So... They gave us a license, they gave us a degree, they gave us all these things to practice, but then they want to tell you how to practice. Yeah. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it's, yeah. it's lunacy. And in my own profession, I've seen this for a really long time. And, and again, my, my passion is breach and twin delivery. Mm -hmm. And every organization in the world supports breach and twin delivery. ACOG, the Royal College, all these things do. But you wouldn't know that if you talk to physicians in the community because they cherry pick the data and they and they have cognitive dissonance against data that upsets their foundation. Yeah. You don't want to support that. So why and would you not say to somebody, listen, I don't do breach delivery or I don't do ivermectin, mm -hmm. right? But there's a guy over there or a woman over there that does breach mm -hmm. delivery and she is prescribing ivermectin. Why don't you go talk to them? But they don't do that. Yeah. And when you say um, that you do or somebody else doesn't do breach delivery, you mean the vaginal birth, the uh, other everybody else is like saying, no, I will only do that type of delivery. I'll do C-section. Is right. that what you're saying? OK. Yeah. yeah. So let, let's um, I like to kind of end my shows on a happy note. We've got about um, maybe 10 more minutes here. So I love how you said at the beginning of this that you catch babies. Is that the term? That you yeah we assist we assist the delivery it's interesting we have a new young physician um, who's doing home birthing here in southern california mm -hmm. and i was telling her that uh i was texting her the other day and i said god i assisted on a beautiful home breach in the in up in the up in the canyons uh in brentwood canyon um this past week and she writes back with me assisted with a question mark and she's just out of residency mm -hmm. right and she's and she was ready to home birthing and i said yes that's the proper terminology and she goes oh i didn't know that and I said, yes, the woman delivers the baby. We assist or we catch or we would whatever we do. But when doctors say I delivered a baby today, um, maybe if you you could maybe make the argument if it's by C-section that they did deliver the baby. Mm -hmm. But a vaginal delivery, um, the woman delivers the baby and we mm -hmm. assist them. And and look at we're we're dealing with the language police right now, and everything is a euphemism for everything else. And so yeah. why not play their game and, and make it and and uh and change the way we look at language, change the, the wording that we use. 
Yeah, we're really in a in a war of language and war and marketing and commercial and uh, yeah, there's just it, it's amazing what we get with 26 letters of the alphabet and and the numbers zero through nine. I'm so amazed what human beings can get up to, you know, I mean, <laughs> these are handy tools for all sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, um, when you yeah. think about when you think about the uh, the euphemisms that are being used for people who say are, are, are maybe vaccine hesitant with this vaccine or want to vary the schedule like our friends who wrote the vaccine friendly plan and they're and they're labeled as an anti-vaxxer but mm -hmm. but why is it that people who are anti-ivermectin or anti-hydroxychloroquine aren't why don't we label them anti-science why don't we label why don't we start calling them the name yeah. they would call you yeah. for being for being like, someone who promotes ivermectin Right. And, you know, and I always just correct, like sometimes I'll get called by the local media here and say they want to do a story on the anti-vax point of view. And I say, first of all, we're about informed choice. We just want to make sure everybody has enough information to make that choice. And it's not, and then they'll get on the conversation of hesitancy. And I said, you know, your, your language is wrong. It's not hesitancy. It's called medical due diligence. Yeah. You do this with everything else. This is just medical due diligence on products that are still in clinical trials. And even if they've been licensed, they're in phase four trials. You Science has never ended um, on things. Everybody is different anyway. So I just, you know, tell them about the language, but yeah, we're in a language war. So can, can, of, can I say yeah. something? One, yeah. of the basic, one of the basic tenets of medical ethics, okay, that in the American Medical Association and almost every organization is that given the same information, it's not reasonable to expect two people to come to the same conclusion because everybody has different life experiences. And yet we are seeing now colleagues of ours and also in from, from the government and also from big tech censorship that if you counsel somebody about a vaccine and they choose not to do not to take it, you must have counseled them wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> you must have, you, you know, because everyone given the same information should come to the same conclusion. Everything they're doing is the opposite yeah. of what I learned in my, in, I mean, basically in, in a lifetime of, of informed consent and ethics and autonomy, respecting autonomy and decision-making and everything is going out the window. And all these same people who, who think your body is a temple and it's my body, my choice. And it's, and, and, you know, the pregnant women who are really pissed off if someone blows secondhand smoke in their face. Mm -hmm. are lining up to put this untested vaccine into their body without hesitation because they're, they're, they're doctors, which are the number one source probably of how people make a decision and rely on, on whether to take something or not, are, 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 have all drunk the Kool-Aid and said, it's, it's safe. You know, yeah. you could say, we don't know if it's safe or not. We think it's safe. But when they, when they say with such certainty that it's safe, yeah, they're, they're lying. They're just simply lying. I, you know, and there, there are literally billions of dollars being channeled to all the doctors, to all the systems. They're being fed scripts, all this. I mean, you know, I attend a lot of these online webinars through the CDC and the NIH and all these other Four organizations seconds. that teach all this. So I can see the propaganda that's being going out there. Um, but all of you get to a point, though, if you are a doctor and you know that we have less than a year of data on this product and we have no birth outcomes yet to even consider, I don't understand how they can turn those critical thinking skills off that much. Okay, you might turn it off for a, a product that's been on the market for 40 years, and you've been trained to ignore the fact that 
you know, allergies, asthma, autoimmune disorders, neurological disorders, or in any re way related. But this is a brand new product with brand new novel technology platforms with ingredients never injected into humans before. So I've never seen such scientific people lose their minds. Yeah. Um, just in, in this month's American Journal of OBGYN, there, the, there, there's an article about, about um, professional responsibility in counseling people on the COVID-19 vaccination. And their only conclusion is that the vaccination, your counseling should lead to the patient taking the vaccination. And, and then I, I dissected in one of my, my, one of my upcoming podcasts, I dissect the arguments and they're so flawed. Yeah. And, and, and there's like eight or 10 authors on this thing. And I know that two of the authors are always on, that, on the side of we, uh, paternalism, but I don't know how the other eight or 10 can just, can come from the same, I mean, again, like I say, these are good people. They come from the same upbringing that most of us come from. And then something gets turned off and they and they and they believe that that their way is the only way to do something. Right. Yeah. So you know, I do I do see people beginning to wake up, and for some, it's going to be so much cognitive dissonance, it's going to be difficult. But I want to give you the last few minutes here to talk about um, why you're passionate about natural birth, and if somebody you know has a baby in their future, where they can go learn more about this process. Okay. I would tell anybody who's pregnant with any pregnancy, even if it's considered the traditional high risk. And by the way, the term high risk is one is, is also something we should get rid of. Okay, the term um, uh, diagnoses on a on a H and P form when you fill it out for your prenatal care, they have a list of of problem. They have a, what's called a problem list. You've heard, you know, you see mm -hmm. it on every chart. All right. On my charts, I cross it off and I put diagnosis down because being over 35 is not a problem and yet it's labeled as high risk. Mm -hmm. Having Taking a, a low dose Synthroid and being diagnosed as hypothyroid is not a high risk problem for pregnancy and yet you're labeled high risk, okay? So there's many, many things. Just calling somebody high risk is planting these seeds of stress and doubt in them and mm -hmm. then making them high risk. And as we learned before, the second and third trimester are the most important times when your neuroimmune axis is being formed by what's happening with your mother and you have epigenetics and that's forming and you can pass that down from generation to generation. And one of the things that really impressed me about the, the talks that we heard was the idea that during this lockdown on all the stress that's been going on, we're gonna suffer from this consequences of this lockdown and all the stress that's been involved for generations, <laughs> right? We are going to suffer that. So how can you get around that? That's your question. I would tell any pregnant woman that when she's pregnant, that she don't, don't just accept the physician or the practice or the insurance that's on your card. Don't say, well, I've been getting my paps were done with this guy for the last 15 years. I'll just let him deliver my baby. Don't do that. Do some investigation. And, and always, 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 as part of your checking out where you're going to end up with, interview with a midwife. Okay. Mm -hmm. Learn about the midwifery model. It may not be for you, but you cannot make an informed decision about hospital birthing unless you know what the alternatives are out there. So interview with a midwife, learn what can be done, learn, learn how their midwifery care is different than obstetric care, and then, and then take it from there. And whatever you do, you ultimately have to decide to go with the people that you feel safest with. 
because mammal will labor best when they feel safe. And if you go into your doctor's office and you don't feel safe or you don't feel honored or you don't feel your questions are being answered or you feel the doctor has one foot out the door every time he comes in the room 20, 30, 45 minutes late um, for your six minute office visit, all right? If you don't feel like you're being hurt, don't accept that. You wouldn't accept that in other aspects of your life. If you went to a restaurant and they treated you like that, why would you keep going back? Exactly. Yeah, I encourage people to um, to interview for their doctors across the board, like you're looking for a spouse, put them through the, the same, some that you have to put that much effort into finding uh, the right uh, person to do the job that you're asking them to do. You have to be aligned with that. And knowledge is power and knowledge keeps fear at bay. And our next guest, if you, uh, you know, after you sign off here, if you want to tune into the station or you can just, um, you, you can hang on if you want. My next guest is Dr. Monica Berger from the conference, the one who did all the wonderful stuff. So you're welcome to stay if you would like. Um, g- give us your website. Tell everybody where they can find you and find your books. Yeah, well, um, my website is birthinginstincts.com and my podcast is Birthing Instincts Podcast and it's on your smartphone app or you can find it on iTunes and you can subscribe to it. And we try to give, uh, listen, I speak for an hour a week and we try to have this conversational style where we speak back and forth about things. She brings her her midwifery aspect of things, her wisdom, her femininity to it. And I, I fully admit that I've got the male energy and I've got the medical background, but I I'm sort of a hybrid. Some people call me a unicorn because I'm, uh, you know, I'm one of those people that still is willing to do the things that that made my profession unique. Mm-hmm. Um, my book is Fearless Pregnancy, and even though it's been, the last edition is ten years old, um, it's all really still relevant. And I think it's a pretty good book, except for the chapter on genetics. I would tell people to take those pages and rip it out because what's happened <laughs> in genetics over the last ten years has been an explosion mm-hmm. from the days of amniocentesis and CVS and that sort of thing to now with uh, the blood test that you can do and called the non-invasive prenatal testing and all the prenatal screening that you can do. There's a whole lot of other stuff. Um, Yeah. And that's it. On Instagram, I'm birthing instincts and I have a rumble. I have a rumble page now also birthing instincts. Wonderful. I've left left YouTube. I never was really a big presence of YouTube, but for the same reasons, I have warnings on my Facebook page that I talk about vaccines and uh, that sort of thing. And I've never been shut down because it's not my, you're not on there too much. Yeah. And I hear Eric playing our music. So we're going to have to wind things up here. Dr. Stu, it has been such a pleasure. I hope you'll come back on and visit us again. And I'm going to send people to Birthing Instincts. Thank you very much, Bernadette. It was great meeting you at this conference and even more so today. Yeah, thank you. You too. Um, so you've been listening to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. Uh, we're going to have a quick break. When we come back, we do have that wonderful uh, Dr. Monica Berger talking about some more wonderful neuroscience. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy, but we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. 
please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Need information about your child's vaccinations? Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization of parents, family members, medical professionals, educators, and Washingtonians from all walks of life. They believe in personal freedoms and individual choices, including healthcare choices. Their mission is to advocate for vaccine policy reform based on scientific integrity and individual health needs, to promote education about healthy immunity, and to protect informed consent and medical freedom in Washington State. To stay informed, visit informedchoicewa.org. Informed Choice Washington envisions the future where every doctor is fully trained in identifying vaccine risk factors and recognizing vaccine injury. Every child is afforded a personalized approach to disease prevention, and every parent has the freedom to make the best healthcare decisions for themselves and their families. They know every child matters. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. Welcome back to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager, and we had a great first hour. That first hour brought to us by Children's Health Defense. That's childrenshealthdefense.org. And this hour, we're continuing on. Uh, Dr. Stu was talking about catching babies and and about, you know, the natural birth process. And, you know, as always, we always squirrel to the problems and the politics of medicine and science and what's going on, but it was a really inspiring um, conversation. So I encourage people to go back and listen to that if they missed the first hour. And we're gonna just pick up where we left off because now we're moving um, to my next guest and I'm just gonna introduce her right away here. Her name is Monica Berger, uh, DC, and that stands for Doctor of Chiropractic or Chiropractic. I'm never quite sure which yep. how to say, okay. Um, she also has an undergraduate degree in exercise physiology from California State University. I'm gonna squirrel real quick because exercise physiology, I want you to tell me what you think about masks. Okay, so I'll <laughs> hang on to that. She has enjoyed extensive postgraduate training in the areas of neurodevelopment, functional neurology, neuronutrition, and functional medicine. She currently has a private family practice in Amman, Idaho, that is dedicated to serving those with neurodevelopmental challenges, neurodegenerative disorders, and chronic health issues. And sadly, that's a fairly large percentage of our population today. Dr. Berger lectures nationally and internationally. She's a contributing author to a textbook on pediatric chiropractic and is the founder of the Intersect for Kids and Intersect for Life programs, which is at intersectforlife.com. And ignore your browser warning if it tells you this, safe, this site is not safe. It is safe. Um, I had to... <laughs> tell my browser, you know, those of us talking truth, sometimes these um, browsers um, flag. I don't know if you know that yours was being flagged, but it's a very safe site. Um, and the mission is to prevent disease in the unborn child 
to promote proper neurodevelopment in the newborn and to create a life of optimal health for all. Welcome, Dr. Monica. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bernadette. I am so excited to be here and um, to have met you a few weeks ago. And um, our missions, I think, are uh, so collaborative and the same. So thank you for having me. Oh, you know, it's just when you started talking about being a Vegas nerve junkie, I'm just like, <laughs> I love that. And I did a little exploration about the Vegas nerve a few years ago, and I've kind of not forgot about it, but shelved it, you know, with other things going crazy. So I'm, I'm so excited for you to talk about that today. And you know what, how about because you've got a lot of information, I'm going to go ahead and just switch things over to you, encourage you to go ahead and share your screen. So we do have people listening on the radio on podcasts, but also people watching on Facebook, and later on, we'll be watching the video. So we'll be talking you through this. So no matter which way you're watching, you're going to be able to see and hear this wonderful information that is all about things you need to know to live an informed life and to make those really important decisions, especially when you're bringing a new life into the world. Absolutely. So I, uh, I tend to talk fast. So I'll try to, I'll try to keep it at a good pace here, but okay. um, so my, 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 we call it my passion, actually. It's my passion and my mission combined. And that is to, um, to turn the tide on those neurodevelopmental challenges that we're seeing. And so, like I said, um, up at the conference we met at is that um, I'd like to put myself out of business for half of my practice, the half that deals with those neurodevelopmental challenges, but there's a lot we need to understand about how to go about that. Mm -hmm. So I am a practicing chiropractor um, and I, and I'm, I'm going to come from a different perspective. I'm actually going to come from a neurological based brain based perspective as we know that the nervous system really controls the immune system. So when I say nervous system, I need you to think immune system. Okay. If we can have optimal function of the nervous system, the immune system, what are our chances on, um, uh, on turning the tide on, on those disorders that we're seeing from autism yeah. to, you know? Well, you know, that's what's so excited me about medicine in the past or science in the past past 10 years. There are some wonderful science, uh, doctors like you who are incorporated just the very latest, but so much hasn't caught up. But we know how integrated the gut brain connection, discovering the lymphatic system enters the brain, you know, learning about the interstitial and all of this stuff. It's we are so interconnected. And you know, it, I, I love that and you put it all together. And I just I pray for the day when what you're doing is what everybody's doing. So go ahead. Uh no kidding. I, I pray for that day too, believe me. Um, and, and so I do mentor a lot of doctors around the world and, and I'm doing that because um, we need to get this work out there. So I do come from a multi-pronged approach. Um, so even looking at the neuroimmune endocrine, and we can throw the word sensory access in there as well, because as we know in the world of neurodevelopment and the neurobiology of disease, this is the origins or prenatal stress is the foundation to um, lifelong disease, physical and mental illness. Mm. Okay. So um, this is a little bit about me. I, I'm in, I live in Idaho. Um, I practiced in California, Northern California for 18 years. And I've been in Idaho for uh, 12 years. So I've been in practice 30 years. And so this is um, a little bit my program. I have a, one called Developing Minds. We go from preconception care to adolescence and how can we use this work that we'll uh, go over today 
to um, to basically change the tide on what we're seeing. And then of course my Intersect for Life program. And these are my neighbors. So we have a, a quite peaceful uh, place that I can regroup and um, decompress, which I advocate for everybody. Yeah. One of the things that we've seen, especially with this last year and that we've been so concerned about with um, kiddos in particular is the fact that they have been locked in their homes and they haven't been outside in the outside world. And there is a thing called nature deficit disorder. And we know that nature and being outside is huge for neurodevelopment and the immune function. So yeah, one of the things I learned um, that was really cool when my son was young of the, the parts of your brain that are activated and that learn and train and grow when you climb a tree. Because, you know, there's just so many things you have to think and feel and it, it just works so many things at the same time. And I just, it, I just, I've always loved to watch my son climb a tree and it just reinforced. Yes, this is. <laughs> it's connecting the brain to the body and the body to the brain. And to be a vital functioning um, human being on all levels, we need that connection because ultimately that's what fosters optimal neurodevelopment optimal neural integrity and right and if you're and if you're doing this climbing outdoors you're touching the tree you're getting all sorts of wonderful bacteria and life forms (laughs) and just integrating with your environment you know you're probably a fan of dr zach bush you know a lot of us follow dr bush's Mm -hmm. work you know and i love the story he tells about you know they went into like a jungle and and the people who are just living very close to the earth and they would hunt and they would have animals draped over them with the blood dripping down and you know they were just so one with the environment when they tested their biomes it matched the soil it matched everything around them and they gave these people which is just seems so criminal they gave them some antibiotics and then saw what happened well nothing happened because their guts were so strong and you know with the they were healthy you know and they were able to even fight off the pharmaceuticals which i love so i digress so you and and, but no you're right is what is the gut 80 70 80 percent of your immune systems in your gut right right there's that gut brain brain gut connection and you know that i am a vagus nerve junkie and um that that for those of you out there the vagus nerve it, it's the big kahuna it um i've been lecturing on the vagus nerve for almost 20 years and now it's all over in, in, in many different facets of the medical paradigm but it is your immune regulator it controls your immune system your anti-inflammatory keyword wow anti-inflammatory arm of your immune system and and where is the vagus nerve and that's spelled in case people want to look it up later v-a-g-u-s yes vagus nerve not like las vegas but (laughs) i i said uh, long ago i said what happens in vegas stays in vegas like in your body too okay um but um the vagus nerve is actually a cranial nerve. So it starts from your brainstem okay. and it goes all the way down both sides. And then it comes down and it, and it branches out significantly right under your sternum. It is, is, it's referred to as the wandering nerve, the great wandering nerve. It's the longest nerve in our body um, with many branches. So it controls your digestion. It controls your heart rate. It controls your stomach acid, your bile acid, the anti-inflammatory arm of your immune system. It has so many functions, the small intestines, the large intestines. Um, it's a big kahuna. And so when the, when the vagus nerve is not healthy, we call it low vagal tone. Mm. Think of it as like your muscle tone. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to be fit, uh, we, we take up regular exercise, right? And the nervous system, they need to be worked out as well. They need exercise as well. So just like muscle tone, neurological tone. So you may hear the term vagal tone. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that is inadequate, then um, many facets of our health can be subpar. So we're jumping way ahead probably to the end of your presentation, but I'm sure people would like to just have a hint about vagal tone exercise that you're discussing. <laughs> we will do that. Um, and so let's get into prenatal stress. Okay. So in the chiropractic world, we say nerves that fire together, wire together. The nervous system needs to be exercised so it gets stronger. But did you know that mom and baby are connected on the intimate level that her nervous system is going to affect the development of baby's nervous system. Okay. Which means that particularly within the end of the second into the third trimester, this is when the vagus nerve, that vagal tone is going to be maturing in that little baby. So right from the get-go, if mom is under stress, now let's think about the last year, what's been going on the last year, um, and the stressors that have been put upon all of us, but let alone those pregnant mamas, when they're stressed, the nervous system, the, that fetal development, the brain mm-hmm. can be compromised and that vagal tone can be compromised. Mm-hmm. So they are born already in a stress kind of response mode. Okay. Um, so we know that prenatal stressors, what affects our, our genetic expression? A lot of people want to throw things on genes and this drives me bonkers. You know, well, it's genetic. Um, I have to live with it. It's genetic. Um, genes are enzymes. They're a protein. They, they're worker bees. Okay. They do work for us. For the most part, if they are supported adequately with proper nutrients and with minimal amounts of stress, even though there might be what we call a mutation, Mm -hmm. a a little snip, a little blip in that function, that gene, we can still support it enough so it works okay. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to fall back on this whole premise of, well, it's in my genes, I just might as well give up. Mm -hmm. Not true. Mm -hmm. Okay. So these stressors affect the development of the nervous system, what we call the autonomic nervous system. Our nervous system has two branches. It has a gas pedal mode, fight or flight, gas pedal, always Mm -hmm. on, and a brake pedal, a calm, a relax, rest and digest state. And it needs to be in balance mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. If mom is stressed out, that balance is already, um, can, can lead to, uh, the, the, the stress can lead to the imbalances of that fetus developing the autonomic nervous system. They end up in what we call sympathetic dominant shift, always on fight or flight always on gospel mode. Okay. These are kiddos. We're seeing this more now. These kiddos are, they're more colicky. They're harder to console. They might have digestive issues. They're spitting up a lot. They have irregular bowel movements. They're sick Mm -hmm. in that first year life. They get ear infections, you know, the things that, and then they get put on antibiotics. So because I did hear you speak on this before, and we might have pregnant women listening who have been under stress, and now they're under more stress thinking they've just harmed their baby because they're under stress. 
So I want you to just tell listeners that there are things they can do. And even after the baby is born to help reset a little bit. And so you're going to have some solutions. So if yes. you're listening to this, don't panic. <laughs> okay. That's what we're all about. We're yeah, breathe. We're, we're turning the tide. Yes. So basically this stress sets the tone for what we call the, the, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, that stress response mode. Okay, but if we're mindful of it, Bernadette, you're right on. If you're, if we are mindful and we can educate pe mm -hmm. the people, mamas, um, we can, we can carve out ways that they can, um, what we call work or find workarounds to decrease the stress load. The baby might be born gut, but gut um, dysbiosis, nutritional deficiencies, which would dysregulate those genes from working properly. Mm -hmm. Both of these will lead to chronic inflammation, and we know that's the foundation of dis-ease. Okay, but let's let's talk about ways we can start being more mindful of this. Okay, a understanding what stressors are. Okay, be just being aware of where stressors are. Trauma. You know, somebody has is in a car accident, falls downstairs, head trauma. But micro trauma, sitting, you know, a lot of people have been home sitting at work and they're not sitting in the best positions. And you might think, what's the big deal? These are stressors on the body that affect the nervous system. Mm -hmm. Emotional traumas. Getting out in nature is a huge benefit to modulate your emotional response to life. So get out a little bit. Um, maybe do some mindfulness, maybe do some meditation, um, have some social circles that you feel supported in. Take these measures to minimize that portion of that stressor. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I coined a phrase for my mama um, because she was always one who gave, 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 but was not very good about, you know, receiving, receiving. And I, I said, mama, self-care is not selfish care. Okay. Oh, I love yeah. it. <laughs> I love it. One that I come up, one that I like to say is I say care, but don't carry. Mm. We can mm -hmm. care about our family members and care about others. Um, but to carry their burden, um, that, that, yeah. that useless energy wasted with the worry, 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 you know, I'm like, mom, I'm, you know, over 50 years old, I can drive from your house to my house and safely. Cause she would still make me check in with her when I got home, you know, <laughs> just, there's just some people who are worriers. I'm sorry. I keep, no, um, but it's but, almost mama's days. I'm so, <laughs> you know, but they might need a little bit more of, of, um, of, of, of conscious shift to a mindfulness, you know, maybe yoga or meditation or Pilates. Pilates is a phenomenal yeah. exercise. So look at the things like that. And the toxins, be mindful of our environment. Toxins, what we eat, what we drink, um, what we breathe in, um, medications, you know, vaccines. These are toxins that we do have some control of our environment and, um, what we put into our body. Mm -hmm. So um, eat, and I say jerk it, not junk it, as far as food goes. Just eat real food. Jerf. Mm -hmm. Jerf it. <laughs> okay, I like jerf it. it. Don't junk it. Um, okay. Thoughts, the way we think about, you know, depression, anxiety, those thoughts, the more we can um, have a good network, have good support system, 
again, be out in nature and try to shift our thought process um, to, to a positive paradigm. I know it's difficult right now. It's hard. But, um, as even little bits can be big bits. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that um, Dr. Zach Bush always says is that, you know, nature wants to thrive and heal. And, you know, so it, it helps you be more forgiving. If you've made mistakes in the past where today's a new day, today you have more information and you can make more choices. And wherever there's a way to heal and overcome and bypass, nature wants to do it. I, I just love that. Absolutely. Um, and I always say, never look back, look forward. Yeah. We can't look back. Let's look forward. Let's look There's forward. A great books. Um, one is called The Body Keeps Score. It's a great book. Um, when the Body Says No. Um, those are those are a couple of good books to read to become more aware of what mm -hmm. we've carried around and maybe some tools and ways we can shed those mm -hmm. a little um, and, and shift a little bit. So The Body Keeps Score, When the Body Says No. Um, those are a couple of ones that on the top of my head that I would say, Hey, check them out. Those are good. Thank you. Yeah. Technology, you know, um, people get hooked on technology and mm -hmm. for many reasons, we, we don't have time to get into the, those reasons, but you know, there's a time to, um, maybe put that tech aside. Now, a lot of people are working from home and on technology more. So taking tech breaks. Um, taking tech vacations, locking up your phone if you have to, um, but maybe minimizing your screen time and, and social media and, and that uh, can be very mindful. We see, we know that technology actually is thinning, so to speak, parts of the brain in the neural development phase and in neurodegeneration phase. Hmm. So we want to be mindful of that. Um, and then I add in this, it's called, I refer to it as tethered restrictions tensions on the, uh, on the, on the spine. So from a chiropractic standpoint, we call them subluxation or misalignments of the, of the vertebral segments that can cause this tethering on the muscles and ligaments and so forth. Um, in little ones, we look at tongue ties and lip ties. Anyway, it's a whole body system that we want to look at. Mm -hmm. But again, if you're aware of them, you can start making some choices, which is giving us power. And that's what yeah. I like. So some things with prenatal stress, you know, we know motor development, um, developmental milestones, immune system integrity, cardiovascular disease. There's a plethora of things that we know that are that are associated with prenatal stress. And essentially what happens is mom's stress goes up, cortisol is our stress response hormone. Mm -hmm. And it is only a, a portion of it is supposed to pass into the placenta um, onto the developing fetus. But we know in times of stress, that percentage can go up and it does affect the developing nervous system of the offspring and vagal tone, of course. So we wanna be mindful of our stress. Um, we wanna mitigate stress. One of the th biggest things that we see during pregnancy is exercise. Exercise is huge in um, decreasing the stress load of mom and increasing the development of the vagal tone on the baby. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So you get a double whammy right there, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So get out, get some exercise. And um, now, especially this time of year, it's at least in Idaho, it's turning a beautiful time. Mm -hmm. Again, choices, food, protein. Protein is needed to help this process uh, 
help, we call this enzyme, this gene right here in the middle, support it. So we tend to be a carbitarian sugarholic society. And um, those are comfort foods as well. Protein is incredibly important, incredibly important for everybody, but especially during pregnancy and during okay. breastfeeding. So make sure that's on board. The the nutrition, uh, the nutrient B, B3, it's also referred to as niacin, will help this process. What we don't want people doing or taking, uh, lots of people are taking um, stress response stress supplements now to try to keep their stress level down mm -hmm. or adrenal support, but they have, some of them have licorice in them. Okay. We don't want licorice in this paradigm. So if you're pregnant, no licorice, no licorice. No, and we're and not I, talking about red rope. We're talking about, we're talking that, that yeah. yeah. I love, <laughs> have you ever had licorice tea? I'm not a fan of the flavor of licorice. So um, no, I'm not a big licorice. I, I don't, I, I avoid sugar at all costs if I can, but um, there's a licorice tea that's just really good once in a while, <laughs> but not during pregnancy. Yeah. So timing does matter. So again, the end of the second, and the third trimester, we really want to be a little bit more conscientious about our, our stress sores that we have on the system. Mm -hmm. Of course, I have to include literature from what I call God's journals. They are, uh, you know, high level journals. And repeatedly, they show that mom's stress response is going to be baby's stress response. Um, and it's going to affect key systems of development, not it, the brain included, obviously, but this hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and the autonomic nervous system that brake pedal balance. Mm -hmm. Interesting thing about this paper is they also found that those mamas in the prenatal stress group we're twice as likely to end up having a C-section, mm. which I didn't, I don't think I said this at the conference up there, but um, there's research out there that looks at C-sections have a higher association with the offspring um, later on having celiac disease. So that's interesting. Yeah, it goes to that biome population or something there, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. But you know, one of the, um, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Tatiana Opokohanich has done some research into looking at the hepatitis B vaccine, which is actually, it's, it's a yeast vaccine. It's, yes. it's cultured in yeast and there's a lot of yeast in the final product. There's more yeast than there is hepatitis B. And, you know, there, there's just an awful lot of gut issues and celiac and all of that. And it, there could be yeah. So, you know, we always tell our listeners, do your homework, do your research. Um, hepatitis B is, um, is really only transferred in blood and it tends to be only through sex and dirty needles. And if the mother does not have an active infection, then the baby is at zero risk. So you can put that decision off for many years into your, your, child's childhood. You will be pressured at the hospital and I'm not giving medical advice, but do your research on whether or not is necessary for your child. Cause you know, you, we don't want to be putting upon, and this is the thing I'm going to score a little bit with the, with the COVID vaccines, the emergency use authorization vaccines, they did trials on children, which I find appalling because children are so low risk of infection. They are not driving transmission. Um, 
And now they're really moving hard to strong arm children into getting these products. And they even admit, well, these children are at risk. We're just trying to have them not get it so they don't pass it to their grandparents. And to use a child as a human shield, that can't be moral or ethical in anybody's book. I don't understand how they could possibly do that. So, you know, we want to make decisions what is best for your individual child and then stick to our guns. And so the more knowledge we have, the stronger we can be when the forces that be are trying to, um, you know, make us do otherwise. Okay. Enough of my preaching. Let no. me see how no, we're absolutely. doing. On, well, you, yeah. know, you know, it's interesting is um, I just got a recent paper out uh, a week ago, two weeks ago um, from, I think it was the journal of immunity about stress and immune response mm-hmm. and that stress the stress hormones um, shut down basically the leukocytes, these the the immune cells from mm-hmm. traveling throughout the body because they need to tra- if 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 there is an infection they need to be traveling so to speak throughout the body to find that and kill that infection off so to speak. Mm-hmm. Stress um, shuts that down, but they've also shown that stress um, now to date I have not seen it related specifically to the COVID vaccine, but past reports have shown stress um, can cause more severe reactions to vaccines. Yeah. So yes. Think about the, the child's already compromised to begin with, mm-hmm. right? With this prenatal stress, mom's compromised. Now we have a child with a decreased immune capacity and then they're being given whatever vaccine at that time, whether yeah. it's happy or whatever. Stress makes everything more dangerous, doesn't it? Absolutely. Right. So I I agree with you. And there's some great books on that. Um, And I, it escapes me the, the title of the book right now, maybe it'll come to us after this break, we're going to take a, a, just a short break. um, And I'm going to be playing for everybody here, a little bit of information from the FLCCC. These are the uh, frontline COVID-19 critical care alliance doctors, because we're on a mission to empower people to know their choice. There is option C um, to everything out there. And I want you to hear this. So the, everybody you hear in this video is a doctor, um, an MD or a PhD, um, amazing people, um, or there are patients, um, talking and I, I can't, I don't remember exactly which one I've got here to play for you, but it is a very important piece here. So you're listening to an informed life radio on 1150 AM KKNW. Uh, we'll play this and then we'll come back to, uh, Monica. How's that Eric? Are you hearing? I'm a lung specialist. I'm an ICU specialist. I've cared for more dying COVID patients than anyone can imagine. They're dying because they can't breathe. They can't breathe. By the time they get me in the ICU, they're already dying. They're almost impossible to recover. Early treatment is key. You know who's dying here? It's our African-American and Latino and elderly. It's some of the most disadvantaged and impoverished members of our society. They are dying at higher rates than anyone else. It's the most severe discrepancy I've seen in my medical career. We need to offload the hospitals. We are tired. I cannot keep caring for patients when I know that they could have been saved with earlier treatment and that drug that will treat them and prevent the hospitalization is ivermectin. We want to treat these people early at home to prevent them progressing to the late phase. The solution is the iMask Plus protocol. This is for the prevention 
and early treatment of COVID-19. The prevention or prophylaxis protocol is based on ivermectin. Mountains of data have emerged from many centers and countries around the world showing the miraculous effectiveness of ivermectin. It basically obliterates transmission of this virus. It needs to be immediately adopted systematically, nationally, and globally, period. Please wear a mask. Masks are a critical component in controlling this pandemic. But it's part of a, an approach, you know, you can't just take ivermectin and then it's going to save the world. You have to still, you know, take appropriate measures. You still need to take your zinc. You still need to take your vitamin D, which is such a simple thing to do. Some of them are just so basic. There's just so much data showing if you're vitamin D deficient, it increases your risk of getting COVID, increases your risk of dying of COVID. We work at the bedside every day. And for the last nine months, we have been witnessing this terrible disease, which has taken over 200,000 lives in this country and over a million worldwide. We have to act now. We have to act with conviction. We have to act with compassion. So that is from the FLCCC, the COVID-19 critical care.com folks. I hope I'm back here. You know, every time I do uh, Zoom, I swear I do the same things and it messes up. I, you know, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to master this, <laughs> but those are great people, you know, and I, I admire them tremendously. I disagree with them about mask use, but I fully support them anyway. Because, um, Yeah. You just, I think they're wonderful. Oh, I was going to ask you, um, remember the beginning because you, you have a degree in exercise, uh, uh -huh. physiology. And so what do you think about the, like the general public symptom-free wearing masks? What's your thoughts? Well, you know, we don't have, um, in, in my opinion, sufficient evidence to show that it, it is helpful or not helpful. Um, but from, and even from my personal experience in the office, the, um, I, it's, it's very unhealthy. Uh, the, you're not getting enough oxygen. You're, um, I noticed one of the biggest things I noticed with my population base and then even in my kiddos is the dehydrate, even the dehydration factor. Hmm. They're not even drinking enough during the day and they're coming in dehydrated. And that's, that leads to a whole plethora of signs and symptoms, the headaches, the constipation, um, and they just don't have that oxygen, that good oxygen supply to think, to mm -hmm. learn. Um, so, um, 
Yeah, it, it's been an interesting one. And, you know, I hope a few years from now when it all settles down in the politicization of, of mask wearing goes away that we end up with some really good science. You know, I'm all for protecting my neighbor, but I, you know, it should um, do more good than harm. And I just don't see putting a mask on a child. I just, it, oh. it breaks my heart. And then they're making them exercise in them, which is just insanity. Well, I, I don't know. Recently, you know, they sh there was a, a, a news clip on um, a runner that was wearing a mask and passed out. I mean, mm -hmm. that is, it is extremely dangerous to your organs. Yeah. We're not just talk we're, we're talking your vital organs, your liver, your kidneys. I mean, it is, it is extremely detrimental. But the other thing we are seeing is that the toddlers are um, having language delays mm. because they don't have that visual and we need visual cues, especially early on in those early years of life, those formative years for brain development. Mm -hmm. And they're not getting those visual cues. And so um, language acquisition is delayed. Yeah, there's so much. And there was a little bit of science before this. I, I had found a, a study published like a decade ago on women who veiled, you know, through for cultural means they veiled and they found that they had a 30% reduced respiratory capacity from frequent veiling. And that's not tight. A veil isn't tight like these masks that are asking people to wear. And what's you know, I, I wonder how they can get away with it because some of the harms are so provable. Dentists are seeing more dental caries and dental disease. We're seeing more pneumonias and upper respiratory infections. You know, you name it. There's so many things that this very unnatural thing is, and people have never worn them for so long in so many situations before that we're seeing. How do they get away with it? Well, they are emergency use authorized. Right. And that means that nobody giving these mask orders is liable for any harm they may be causing. Right. And, you know, human beings just do not behave well in the absence of responsibility. I'm sorry, we just don't. You know, renters trash houses because you know what? I paid my damage deposit and it's not mine, right? And I, I mean, I don't mean to trash renters. I've been a renter myself, but you know, even if you're, even if you're a, a good renter, there's always something in the back of your head. Well, it's not mine. You know, <laughs> um, it's not my problem. I can do this. And yeah, who cares? You know, I'm not going to get in trouble. They'll pay for it. They'll pay for it. And you know, it's not good. <laughs> well, my, my, my fear is that the, who's going to pay for it. I and mean, we're all going to pay for it, but the kids are going to really pay for it. The kids are going to pay for it. Yeah. Psychologically. I mean, I, I'm, I'm almost, it's it's really the psychological harms that I that that hurt my heart the most. You know what they're seeing is that some children are actually having stress reactions and fear oh. reactions when people are not masks. Yeah, because they're not yeah. used to seeing faces, um, and that's yeah. um, and and it's not. I think what we have to understand this is um, imprinting on the brain, which can, that imprint can stay forever in a PTSD fashion. And when we continue to respond in that fashion lifelong, again, you're under this chronic stress response mode. I wonder how they intend to undo the fear. I have asked this question of our Department of Health and they have no answers. Are they gonna have over the freeway? Don't worry, breathe. You know, the air is safe. It's safe to hug. Are they, how are they going to undo this? Well, that, yeah, that's a great point. Um, 
when, when, when you are in, um, when you have even just one experience and that can lead to a PTSD experience and PTSD can be, all of us respond differently. There's the interesting thing is no two people in the entire world view you the same way or me the same way or a situation the same way. We all respond and interpret our environment, our situation, our, our experience differently. And when that, beca- when that is a fearful experience, the part of your brain that is your emotional part of your brain, I call it the fear monger. It's called your mm-hmm. amygdala, your fear monger. It imprints in there. So from that point forward, you might have the same response to similar base situations. It doesn't even have to be the same situation. It doesn't even have to be a real threat but we respond the same way. Well, this last year, over a year, we've all been kind of shoved, thrown into that part of your brain um, and that fear response mode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is very hard. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of work to undo that. Those two books I mentioned can be very, the serenity code is another one. The serenity code is um, actually, um, it was written kind of, it was, it was, I believe the author started writing it before the pandemic and then it just tied into the pandemic. So the Serenity Code is a nice book for listeners and viewers to, to look up as well to help us try to get ourselves out of that fear monger. Because if you don't, the long-term implications are phenomenal and not a good way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm hoping that I could get you later on to email me this list of, since I haven't been taking notes, of book titles, and then I'll put it on our website where with the show description so people can find those. I so appreciate that. Let me see how we're doing on time to see where we want to go. We've got about, you know, um, 10, 12 minutes here. So what do you want to focus on in the the last minute? I want to just do maybe a couple. I want to flip through a couple key areas of of what individuals should look for. I really want to go, let's see. And and I'm going to tell listeners too that Informed Choice Washington is inviting um, Dr. Berger to to do a webinar with us because she's got so much great information. So um, I do know that whatever you're not able to sneak in this uh, this radio show today, we're going to have you back, and and so people can awesome. really invite awesome. all their loved ones, especially the ones who got babies coming. <laughs> awesome. So I, I refer to you know with the prenatal stress is a coming epidemic. Here's here's the deal is um, again, our ancestors' response to our environment and stress, all those stressors, trauma, toxins, thoughts, technology, tethers. So again, masks, vaccines, um, being indoors, everything that we've endured this last year, we know that this is gonna set the stone for the the offspring. And we've seen that from other natural disasters. There's plenty of literature to, to, to look at this. And they, they, the offspring are more predisposed to depression, anxiety, PTSD. Mm-hmm. All right. One of the things that um, we looked at during the COVID, this COVID pandemic is the increase in reported anxiety in pregnant women. I, I think maybe one of my take home pearls I want to be is understand that you still have power over your choices and your body, especially in the birthing experience. So a lot of my pregnant moms have chosen to look at home births um, and using midwives and such if the hospital was not um, conducive to their 
to their needs and not allowing a birth partner in and so on and so forth. So I would really advocate working, um, having a, a birth plan, working with um, midwives in your community to minimize your anxiety and your stress around the pregnancy. Um, so I think that's really, really important um, to in this birth plan to um, have your baby with you in the room afterwards. Um, early on last year, when this all started, they would a lot of hospitals were separating mom and baby. That golden hour, that first hour after birth, is is huge for a bonding experience. It is huge, by the way, to set the tone for this vagal the vagus nerve. Mm. Okay, so but what we're finding is that because of the stress around the birthing experience now, that moms are having a harder time breastfeeding and bonding and so forth. And again, this is incredibly important to set the foundation for your baby for the rest of their life. So, you know, take that control, take that power and, um, and, and have, you know, hopefully your birth partner is with you so that in times, you know, when you're, when you're in that, in labor and in that experience, um, it might be hard for you to keep your head on straight, but have a good advocate there for you um, that really knows your wishes and your wants. The number one reason women this last year have reported um, a negative, a actually a PTSD birth response is because of poor communication with their medical uh, providers, meaning they were, wherever they were delivering at, um, they felt that their, um, their rights, their wishes were taken away from them and that medical staff was not communicating what they were doing, why they were going to do it. Um, and that was a number one reported reason for PTSD experience around the birth, birthing process. So um, ha have a birthing plan, go over it, have it in writing, have a good um, a person there as an advocate for you and know that you have this power to control that situation because it's huge. Mm -hmm. I, I would like to bring this in because it it is a pet peeve of mine is with the COVID vaccine, they... They have found that in this particular study here that about 50, just 56%-ish um, uh, reported adverse event reaction after the first dose and about 62% after the second dose. Now they're reported that local pain was the, the most common adverse experience they, they uh, felt, the moms felt. However, this is incredibly important. They looked at infants, they just took four infants, but seven, 12, 15, and 20 days after mom got vaccinated, all of them had symptoms of upper respiratory tract infection. One was admitted to a hospital for prophylactic antibiotics. Okay, so let, let's slow down just a little bit for the radio listeners here. So it's a study published in JAMA on vaccinating pregnant women for COVID-19. And you're saying that all of the births all of the babies were born had symptoms of upper respiratory tract infection? This one, no, this was four, um, four out of the 47 women, four yeah. infants were developed a fever. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, not all of them, um, but all of the four that did. Oh, this was breastfeeding women. Yes. Breastfeeding okay. women. Okay. I'm sorry for the listeners. I was thinking, I, I was seeing the visual and I didn't. Uh, That's okay. <laughs> it was in breast milk. This okay. was um, mothers that had been vaccinated the antibodies, the COVID antibodies are, we know they're found in breast milk. 
-hmm. we know they also pass the placental barrier, meaning those antibodies um, are passed on to the baby. Mm -hmm. And we don't know the long-term implications on that for fetal development. Yeah. So we have not seen any studies saying that the COVID-19 antibodies, like if you, if you were sick and the mother's doing the normal passage of, of your own natural response to an infection, passing those on antibodies, normally those are protective to the baby, um, not harmful. You know, pregnancy is a difficult time, but you're saying what we're talking about is the antibodies that reacted to the spike protein that your body is being told to make. Correct. Okay. In this case, this was the antibodies to the, to the vaccination. Okay. Um, it, from what I've seen so far, and you know, I, I can't be held to this in stone, but um, those moms that were pregnant or breastfeeding and had the natural wild COVID um, virus, mm-hmm. um, most babies from what I've heard has have responded well, been okay. Um, but this was, this was a study that just came out April 12th with regard to the vaccine itself. Okay. So what we have to think about though, is what did that do to this child's immune system that they ended up with an upper respiratory tract infection? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We there, it's just, it's just too new. It's just too new. It's experimental. And that that's the main message that we've been kind of harping on is everybody should have absolute freedom of choice with no coercion, no threat of job loss, no threat of no access to school or sports for saying no to this experimental product. Pfizer is now saying that they're, they're now pursuing licensing. And so it's going to be a fast track sort of process. So even when it's licensed, you, you cannot rush long-term safety studies. They're not, we, we don't have a time machine to go five years into the future and look and see, oh, five years later, this is what we know. You cannot rush long-term safety science. I don't know how they, you know, no, and we just it, don't know. And I think the, the more we know, the more we don't know, you know, yes. it's those things yeah. that, the more we're learning, the more we know we don't know, which is yeah. alarming. It, it really is. And so, yeah, we've got maybe uh, two more minutes here, Monica. And, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg of the, the really important um, information that she has about things that we need to be concerned about, especially in, you know, in pregnancy and early motherhood and early childhood. But she's full of wonderful solutions, too. And so watch at informedchoicewa.org. We're going to coordinate with her with her very busy schedule to see if we can get a webinar going and bring you some really good information because knowledge is power and uh, we we, want to bring some healthy little ones into the world and things are reversible. We've got lovely chiropractors that, you know, we're not going to be perfect. We are not perfect people, but we can learn and, and make some changes. Cause you mentioned at that conference, some different adjustments that can be made that can help, um, with some of this when we take the stress off the system we can have a better what we call adaptability that nervous system has more fudge room and has mm-hmm. more room to handle stressors mm-hmm. and so you know as, as chiropractors that's essentially what we do is we take the stress off the system so it can it can adapt better to the stressors on a daily basis and then we like to you know advocate again jerk it don't junk it just eat real food 
maybe take some supplements, stress management. So these are all things we can talk about in a more in-depth webinar mm-hmm. um, to give, you know, give a little bit more um, precise suggestions, but really being mindful. I think mm-hmm. that's step number one being mindful. A lot of people think stress is I'm stressed out because I got in a fight with my boss or my husband. Mm-hmm. Stressors are more than that. And so think of those five T's that we okay. went over. And where can people go online now if they want to go find you and read some of the, read about you and read some of your words? That's um, intersect. Oh no. That, yeah. yeah the, in, either intersect for life. Okay. Um, or dev minds you D E V M I N D S U.com developing minds Okay, great. Yeah. And, and I'll get some, all these links and information up on our website so that everybody can find you. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a fantastic hour. Thank you. And I look forward to um, spending some time with you again. Yeah, you bet. We'll be in touch. So everybody you've been listening to and inform life radio on 1150 AM KKNW, um, Bernadette Pager, your host come, uh, host, come back next week. We're going to bring you more great information. Um, your, your job this weekend is to relax and celebrate life, breathe deeply, take off your socks and shoes and, and go walk through the wet grass and, and just enjoy life. So have a good one. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at healthyimmunitynow.org. That's healthyimmunitynow.org. Need information about your child's vaccinations? Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization of parents, family members, medical professionals, educators, and Washingtonians from all walks of life. They believe in personal freedoms and individual choices, including healthcare choices. Their mission is to advocate for vaccine policy reform based on scientific integrity and individual health needs, to promote education about healthy immunity, and to protect informed consent and medical freedom in Washington state. To stay informed, visit informedchoicewa.org. Informed Choice Washington envisions the future where every doctor is fully trained in identifying vaccine risk factors and recognizing vaccine injury. Every child is afforded a personalized approach to disease prevention, and every parent has the freedom to make the best health care decisions for themselves and their families. They know every child matters. Go to informedchoicewa.org today.